All right, good morning, church. It's great to see you. Um, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Ephesians chapter 3, and uh, I'll explain why we're there and what we're going to do there and all of those kind of things in just a minute. Um, but while you're turning there, Ephesians 3 is where we'll be. Um, I know it was Friday, um, but I will, would and will be remiss if we don't um, stop and give honor where it is due um, to the men and women um, who serve in or have served in our armed forces. So uh, just in honor of Veterans Day, we had some incredible men in the first service. Um, if there's anyone in here um, in this service that has served in the military or currently serving active reserve, uh, if you're serving our military in any capacity, would you mind standing so we can give you the honor and the respect and the thanks that you deserve? Amen. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Um, yeah, there's no amount of words um, that we could give you. Um, the words that come to mind are in John 15, um, when Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, um, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And uh, we cannot begin to thank you for the amount of love that you've given us in our community and our nation, um, that you would answer that call uh, to potentially lay down your life um, for us. So thank you for doing that. Um, like I said, we could thank you for the rest of our time. Uh, we are incredibly grateful um, for you. Thank you for your service. Um, as I mentioned uh, last week, uh, I'll say this. If you're a guest with us, man, we're glad you're here. Um, we're glad that you're jumping in on the first week of something new that we're going to be doing. Um, if you know us, our MO, and uh, it'll actually come up over the next few weeks as we talk about um, the church in this series, uh, one of the marks of a healthy church is that we preach verse by verse through the scriptures. Um, I would argue that we start at the beginning of a book and we just preach the books of the Bible because that was the way God intended them to be written and heard. And uh, we want you to hear them that way and learn them that way as well. Um, <laughs> what's funny about that is we're not going to do that this morning. Uh, so I want to just kind of give that caveat. If you are one of our members, if you attend regularly, you know that we do that every single week. So um, one of the things that we're going to do, as I mentioned last week, is um, we have announced recently that we are planting our church, um, that this church that you see here, um, this group of people um, are going to be planted and sent by um, our East Memphis campus, and uh, we're going to be our own independent, autonomous church. And as we do that, we want to stop and define, okay, what is a church biblically? What does that look like? Um, how let's all get on the same page as far as the definition who is the church what is the church what's the purpose of the church what are the attributes of the church what are marks of a healthy church we're going to look at all those things over the next three weeks and then we'll jump back in and sync up with our east campus uh, in the advent season so if you're a guest with us um who knows god is sovereign over our lives he's sovereign to bring you here this morning that you're not here on an accident and if you're just passing through at the very least you'll get to learn what a healthy church is and looks like and uh, you can look for one of those as you go about your way um, if you're considering joining our church that's great we're glad you're here as well um, you'll get to, to hear and see what a church is um, in the scripture. So what we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're going to do a study on what is called ecclesiology. Um, that's just a big fancy term for the doctrine of the church. Um, ology obviously means the study of, and this ecclesia part comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is the, the verb or the word, the noun for the church. So um, that's all that means. And what we're going to do is look at, okay, what does Scripture say? We're going to look at Scripture as a whole. And what does it say a, a church is and does? And how does it function? What does a healthy church look like? And all of those kind of things. Um, because I would venture to say, just in a, a room this size, um, when I say the word church, I bet a lot of different ideas come to your mind. A lot of different pictures. Some of you might think of a program. Some of you think of a brand, a building, a personality that you watch or listen to weekly. Um, you can think of all sorts of different things, um, a, a type of music. Um, there are so many things. There are so many different views today on what the church is. And uh, you have a theological position on what the church is. You have a theology of the church, whether you call it that or not. Um, you have a definition in your head of what the church is, how it's supposed to function in your life and in other people's lives. Um, for some of you, that is very different. And so I want to say, what does Scripture say um, the church is? So um, there's a couple reasons why we're going to do this. Um, one of those reasons is, uh, like I said, we're planting this church, and I want to make sure that our members and our family knows what we're talking about when we refer to um, a church. 
Um, but two is that I believe that, as I said, ecclesiology is one of the big issues of our day today. You know, it doesn't get a lot of the spotlight. It's not one of those that, you know, you see CNN talking about and going, man, if they could just understand, you know, ecclesiology, things would be better. It's not one of those that's in the limelight. Um, but all throughout church history, different doctrines and different, um, yeah, different doctrines in Scripture have had their moment and have had their day. And early on in the church, um, the doctrine of justification by faith, that you and I are saved by faith alone, um, showed up all throughout the Protestant Reformation. Like it was, it was that doctrine's day where we need to get this right because it's gonna change how the church functions, right? That you're saved by grace through faith, zero works required, Jesus accomplished the work in your place. Um, that you know, started and lit the flame of the Reformation, and now we worship the way we worship because of that period of time, because that doctrine had its moment. Um, in the fourth century, we saw the doctrine of Scripture kind of have its moment, where you had all of these different people trying to decide what's Scripture, what's not, getting, claiming to get special revelation about things. Uh, we still see a lot of that today. Um, but you saw the church decide, okay, this is the Scriptures. This is the canon. This is God's Word. God has spoken. From now on, no one else is getting any special revelation from the Lord. The Holy Spirit still speaks to us, but what does he do? He reminds us of what God has already spoken. That God's not showing up to me and giving me something on par with scripture. That he, God has spoken. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in this last period of the history of the church, he has spoken, past tense, by his son by Jesus, who's the word of God. We have the, the last word of God revealed to us. Now God still speaks and God will still speak for all eternity. But like I said, he will not lead us or guide us or prompt us to do anything that is not in line with what he has already spoken in his word. Does that make sense? So I would argue that ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church is kind of having its day right now because Christians are highly confused on what the church is and how it's supposed to function. Um, if you just look at the, the church in America, just think about the churches that you're aware of. Um, there are lots of different ways that people are doing church, right? Some churches are great at some things, some are killing it online, some are doing great at missions, some are doing this, some think it's about you know, racial reconciliation, some think church is about other things. Some, like, everybody's got their own definition of the church. In fact, Dr. Howard Hendricks, he says um, that the fundamental problem of the American church is, is, is having an identity crisis, that we don't know who we are and we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. So, a couple reasons why. I would argue one of those is secularism, that our world has just grown increasingly secular. Um, that, you know, if you think about it 20 years ago, it was actually advantageous for you to put that you're a Christian on a job description, that you could go and apply for a job and you could say, hey, I'm a believer, and it scored some points for you. And people respected that and people valued that. And, you know, that was in the 90s and then in the 80s. Now, you know, unless you're applying at Chick-fil-A, it doesn't score any points for you. In fact, I would argue that in our world today that it docks you a couple of positions for you to identify, hey, I hold to the truths in scripture. I worship the God of the Bible. I believe that what his word says is truth. That now our world views that as outdated and bigoted and narrow-minded and offensive and oppressive and all of those things, right? And what's the church's temptation to do? Is budge on the scriptures, is change the message of the scriptures and not preach the word as it is written, to tempted to, to bring you in here and make you feel good every week so you'll keep coming back instead of give you the word of God. Another one um, besides secularism is pluralism, right? This idea that there is no absolute truth, that truth is relative to the individual, and my truth might not be your truth, and truth is not outside of us and fixed, but it's inside of us, and it's ever-changing and relative, and it's based on how I feel in the moment. Um, that flies in directly in the face of the church, that we believe that God is the author of truth, that he has fixed the world. There is an objective truth and it is outside of us and God has revealed it to us in his word and how he's ordered the world, that this is our standard of truth, that regardless of how I feel, this will always be true. It has always been true and it will always be true. And my feelings are not truth. My feelings lead me astray all of the time. 
Jeremiah says the heart is the most deceitful of all things. But it flies right in the face. So what's the church's temptation to do? Is to not preach the truth. Is to not talk about the truth. Is to give suggestions instead of truth. Is to give some advice instead of saying this is what God has said about us and for us and how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to do. Another one, and I've been taking bets uh, with myself, and uh, I think one of this is the one that is going to, to be the thing that our church specifically, that the American church, that especially in the South, that we're gonna have to wrestle with over and over again if we want to be a true biblical church, and that's American individualism, is that in our world today, We love to do our own thing, to opt into things, to opt out of things, to have things on demand when we want it, right? To go about our own way, to do our own thing, to be self-sufficient, to not be dependent on anyone else or any group or any government or anything like that, that I wanna be as self-sufficient as I can be. I wanna be a lone ranger, I wanna do my own thing. And we see that creep into the church, right? That I can worship God on my own, I can worship him in my car, I can watch and listen to messages during the week on my own, and I can do this whole Christian thing by myself. I can grow on my own. We see it even in the church. But this idea that God saves us, and not only does he unite us to himself, but he unites us to one another, and he makes us a family where we're dependent on one another, and I don't have all the gifts, and you don't have all the gifts, and we actually need one another, and we depend on each other, and God's called us out to be this group that keeps each other accountable, and rebukes one another, and corrects one another, and and does all the one another's of the Bible, right? That's going to fly in the face of this American individualism that we all know and love, and I'm guilty of it right? There are times during my day where my goal is to get where I'm going and to get home without interacting with a single human individual, right? You can resonate with that, can't you? It's to get to the grocery store, to walk the back wall, right? Get what I need, sneak back around, do the self-checkout, get back to my car and get home, And Jesus Christ has purchased and redeemed with his bloodshed and his body broken a people who he has called out to be and live with one another. And if we wanna be a true Bible-believing, Bible-obedient church, we're gonna have to open ourselves up to one another. And we're not gonna like that all the time, right? In fact, all of the commands I don't wanna say all, most of the commands in the New Testament are written in the context of a local church. That if we don't do the hard work of knowing one another, there's 59 one another's in the New Testament to carry one another's burdens, to serve one another, to rebuke one another, exhort one another. If we don't do the hard work to actually know each other, then we can't even obey the New Testament. We can't. We can just generally do that to people that we you know, might pass by But that was not what it was intended. It was written to a group of people who were in a covenant relationship with God and committed to one another to be and do all that a church is and does. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. The last one, though, is uh, one of the things that is, is causing the identity crisis in the church is competition, is we don't measure success by our obedience to the scriptures. We measure success by butts in the seats and money in the bank. And how you measure success determines how you set up your church. And if our goal for success is not how obedient to the scriptures are we being, but instead it's how many people are we getting in this room and how many dollars do we have in the bank, that changes everything about how your church functions. Then it becomes sonic, right? It's we gotta be faster than the next person. We gotta offer a better service and a better quality and better music and better lighting and better things. Right, we'll serve it on roller skates if we have to, if that gets people to come to our building. And you compromise on what the church was intended to be and how it was intended to function because you've changed your definition of what success looks like. Does that make sense? So all of this kind of slammed together with you know lots of other reasons. We could talk for hours about the different reasons that the church is struggling in our world today, um, but it will not be stopped. It is the only human institution that God promises to bless. I want you to hear that. It's not the only institution that he will bless. He blesses according to his sovereign will and grace. He blesses lots of things. But it's the only one that he's promised that he will bless. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church's mission will be accomplished because it's by his power, by his spirit, by his grace, and by his gospel. It's going to get accomplished. 
But so often we change the, the definition of success. And here's the last reason, and this is more of a personal reason, um, but it's also a biblical reason. Here's the reason why we're talking about this, because um, as a pastor of this congregation and the elders and the staff, um, I will give an account to Jesus Christ one day for how I cared for you, how I taught you, how I loved you, how I protected you, how I served you, how I cared for you. And that keeps me up at night, that I'm gonna look at Jesus one day and hear me, he's not gonna ask how great the service was, he's not gonna ask how many people were in the seats, he's not gonna ask about those things. He's going to ask about names. Hey, how did you love and shepherd the Comers? How did you love and shepherd the Megs? How did you love and care for and protect and feed and shepherd the Paytons? He's going to ask me about names. Talk about losing sleep. And I don't say this as a victim, like this is part of the job. You know this going into it, right? But leaders and shepherds and elders and pastors are going to give an account. Hebrews 13, it is in the scriptures. It says this, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give or who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, we'll talk about the submission and all that stuff later, but I want you to see the point of this is that the elders and the, me, the pastor of this church, I will give an account to the Lord one day for how I kept watch over your soul, how I cared for you, how I shepherded you, how we fed you the word, how we were there for you and loved you and served you and practiced all of those one another's in the scriptures. Does that make sense? And I want to, I want to read a quote for you. This is um, pastor, his name is John Brown. Um, this is a great quote. And I want you to hear me. Um, the, the point of this quote, he talks about small churches and church sizes and those things. Um, the point of this that I'm sharing, this is not the size. I'm talking about the principle of, of feeding and caring and shepherding, shepherding. And I want to be clear. Y'all, I absolutely love our church. God is sovereign over the church. I can't force growth. I can't do anything like that. God promises that he's building the church, that he's sovereign over people's lives, that he will handle the growth. He will handle the salvation. My job is just to faithfully shepherd. And y'all, we have an incredible group of people at this church. So when I read this quote, it's not like me secretly wishing. The reason we're doing this series is not kind of this underhanded, hey, if we just talk about this, it'll grow. God controls all that. God's sovereign over that. And in light of this quote, I want you to see that I'm, I love where we are as a church. I love the families in this church. And God is sovereign over the rest. Look at this quote from Pastor John Brown. He's talking to a young pastor um, who's pastoring a small church, uh, ironically. And he says this. Um, he says, I know the vanity of your heart, that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. He says, but assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. And if that is, there's nothing more true than that. That there could be five families in this church. And if I wanted to faithfully give an account to the Lord, I could spend 40 hours a week or more loving and shepherding and caring for the people in this church. That when I stand before Jesus one day, I'm gonna think I've had plenty of people to look after and care for and do life with and, and practice all of the one another's of the New Testament with. Does that make sense? So this isn't an underhanded like, hey, if we just talk about this, you know, we'll get more butts in the seats and more. I'm, God's sovereign over all that. Hear my heart in this. As we plant, I, my goal, our measure of success is how do we be as biblically faithful to who and what, uh, who the church is and how it's supposed to function. Does that make sense? So I just want you to hear me in that. We're gonna look at the scripture over the next three weeks and we're gonna look at the definition of the church, um, the attributes of the church, the role of the church, the purpose of the church, um, and then some marks of a healthy church um, as we move forward. So um, I realized I did not read Ephesians 3, did I? Let's read that and then uh, we'll pray because it, it's, it's a good transition time right here. Um, I'm gonna read verses, um, I believe it starts in verse seven. I'm gonna read uh, seven through 12. 
of, of Ephesians 3. So if you'll stand with me real quick, we'll read this and then we'll jump in. Um, longest introduction ever. It says this, um, I'm actually just a fourth of the way through the message. So um, it says this in Ephesians 3, it says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me though, I am the very least of all the saints. Uh, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul's preaching and he's, gonna, um, he's been given this task to reveal this plan. And then he says this, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. You can have a seat. Lord, teach us as we walk through um, what a church is and does, and God, help us to do all that we can um, to be and to do what a church is and does. God, we're grateful that you've purchased the church, that you're the head of the church, that you're building your church. And uh, God, we are just recipients and get to be a part of your great work uh, to redeem a people for yourself. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So back where we were, what is a church, right? This verse comes up in Ephesians 3, through the church, this mystery and this plan of God, um, eternally planned from the Father, would be revealed. What does that mean? Well, let's look at what the word church means, and we'll start there. Um, the word church in the Greek language is the word ekklesia. Um, it is a noun uh, with a prefix on the front. That ek in the front um, is just a prefix that means out or out from. And then the rest of the word is a um, form. It's the noun form of the verb kaleo, which means to call. So the verb of form of this would be to call out or to call out from. The noun form of this is the called out ones. It's a person, place, or thing. So it's a group of people. It's the called out ones is what this word means in its most literal sense. It is a group of people who have been called out by God's grace. As First Peter says, we've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. That He has chosen us, he has redeemed us, he has saved us, he has put his spirit on us as a seal, he has marked us, and he has called us out. That's what the church is. It's a group of people who have been called out. And I want you to see very clearly, the church is not a place, the church is not a building, the church is not a brand, it's not a program, that it is a group of people which is why when we greet you, we say, good morning, church, right? We don't minister at this church, we minister to this church. If you are in Christ, you are a part of the universal church. You might not be a member of our church, but you are still a part of the church, the people of God who have been called out to love him, to know him, to walk with him, to be governed by him, to worship him, and to enjoy him forever. If you are in Christ, you are a part of the church, it's not a place, it's not a building, it's not a brand. It is a people. And I want you to see this, that it has always been a people. From the moment that humanity was put on the earth, God has always had a community of people who worship him since he created humanity. That's what Adam and Eve were created to do. They were created to know God, to worship him, to enjoy him, God creates Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, and then the story is told again in Genesis 2, but we see at the end of Genesis 1, he gives them this mandate to be fruitful and multiply. One, Genesis 1, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That this was God's plan for humanity that they would fill the earth, that they would subdue it, that they would enjoy him, that they would enjoy one another, they would enjoy the earth, there would be no sin, no shame, no death, no sadness, that this was the, the, the commission, to go and enjoy the earth, fill it and subdue it. But what happens? Adam and Eve disobey God, they mar everything with their sin, now they've got a sin nature in them and now just like Adam and Eve, all of us, we sin, 
We don't love God perfectly. We fall short of his glory. We sin not only by nature, but also by choice. And we see that this reality was broken by sin. And even then, though, there was still a people who would be called out to worship God, even in that moment, right? Adam and Eve sin, what does God do? He sacrifices an animal and covers them with the skin of an animal. He gives them a promise of a redeemer that from Adam and Eve's own lineage would come a son, would come someone who would crush the head of the serpent and undo all that their sin has done, would come and redeem it and restore it and fix it. And even then, Jesus, we know, is that redeemer and that seed of the woman. But even right after that, Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. Doesn't work out well for them, right? Cain kills Abel over the the right and true worship of God. That was the issue. And what happens? Even after Cain and Abel, God shows his grace. God gives Adam and Eve another son. His name is Seth. And even through Seth's line, God says, I'm going to bless, I'm going to send a redeemer, and there's still going to be a people who are called out to worship me. To the point at the end of Genesis 4, it says this, to Seth also was a son born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That since day one, there has always been a people who have been called out to worship the Lord. And if you follow through the Old Testament, we see the lineage of Seth all the way to Noah, and humanity is still falling short of the, God's glory. In fact, Genesis 6 opens with um, their hearts had grown evil and they only did evil continuously and God righteously punishes the earth with the flood, but he also shows grace to someone who finds favor, someone who was worshiping him and his name was Noah. And Noah doesn't do it perfectly, but he was still a people who have been called out to worship the Lord. And all throughout, you see from Noah to Abraham, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make a covenant with this people. They're gonna be called out to worship me. I'm gonna give them a land. I'm gonna bless them. They're gonna be a blessing to all the earth. And they do just that. They start to multiply. They see all the success, so much so that they get thrown in slavery in Egypt. And for 400 years, they are enslaved in Egypt. And what's so ironic about this and fascinating about this is when God raises up Moses um, to be the mediator between God and humanity and speak on behalf of God and rescue the people and deliver the people out of their bondage, um, they all are there in Egypt. They are all rescued. They all go to Mount Sinai and they all gather there. They all assemble there. And it is the first time since Genesis 1 that all of the people of God are assembled into one place and they're hearing from the voice of God at Mount Sinai. That you see all of the people of God who have been called out gathering in one place and they worship the Lord. And God speaks to them using his word and gives them a law that this um, covenant group of people, this called out group of people, this assembly of the called out ones that they would know him by and live by and follow him by, and he gives them the covenant. What's fascinating about this, though, is that um, when Moses writes in Deuteronomy and he refers to this day where they were all assembled and gathered, the word he uses there um, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the word ekklesia, that it's the assembly of these called out ones who are gathered together and God rules them by his word. He gives them the law. He's given a shepherd to guide them and Moses and they are a group of people called out to worship God. And we see since then, all throughout the Old Testament, that throughout the Old Testament, God makes the nation of Israel a kingdom. He says in Exodus 19 and 20 that you're gonna be my treasured possession. I love you, I care for you, I'm gonna protect you. You're gonna, he, he turns them into a kingdom. He also says, um, as he distributes the tribes, that they have priests and he makes them into a nation. God comes through on his word. They're his treasured possession, they're a kingdom, they have priests, they're a holy nation. And what's so ironic about that is that's the very thing that Peter refers to Gentile believers um, in 1 Peter chapter two. He says, you're a chosen race, right? You're chosen, you're his treasured possession, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this is who the church is. It is 
people who have been called out by God to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, to worship him. And the church's mission will succeed. The story began with the, the idea and the mandate that the people would be with God, they would worship him, they would fill the earth, they would subdue it. What does Jesus say when he's calling the disciples? He says to go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Spirit, teaching them to obey, right? Go fill the earth and go subdue it with the gospel. And how does the story end? The gospel will go to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group, and then, Jesus says in Matthew, the end will come. And the story began, and the story will end. Jesus will redeem what was broken because of our sin. It will end with people of God called out to know him, to enjoy him, to worship him, to fill the earth, to subdue it. There will be no sickness, no sadness, no death, no decay, all of it will be defeated. We will be standing in the robes of righteousness given to us by our Savior, and we will get to know and enjoy him and worship him forever. That the church's mission will be accomplished. But the church is a people of God who are in covenant relationship with him, who've been called out by God, and we live by his word. We obey him. We're in covenant relationship with him. We practice these signs of being in a covenant relationship with him. Now, there's some differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament signs of being in a covenant relationship with God are different than the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was circumcision and keeping the Sabbath. Um, in the New Testament, praise God, it's baptism and communion. But why do we do those things? They're signs that we are in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Baptism is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we are a part of this covenant love that he has bestowed on us. The Lord's Supper, what is it? Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's reminding ourselves, it's renewing the covenant that we have with God as we partake of his body broken and his blood being shed. But the church is the people of God called out, the called out ones to know him and love him and enjoy him. Um, but like I said, there's some differences between the Old and the New Testament. But it's, it's not two separate churches. It's not two separate groups of people. There's one people of God, Old and New Testament, that will all be gathered before the throne one day. Paul says in Ephesians 4, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That there's one group of people who God is called out. Um, even in Romans 11, when Paul's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, he, he likens them to one tree. Now he says there's different branches within the tree and some have been cut off for now and some have been grafted in. That's us, the Gentiles. We've been grafted into this thing that looked like it was originally just for the Jews. But right now, by and large, um, Israelites aren't coming to know Jesus Christ in rapid numbers. They've been cut off so that why? The Gentiles, us, People who did not grow up Jewish, we could be brought in, but then the Gentiles are much later, they're gonna be grafted in, or the Jews are gonna be grafted in at the end and we'll all be this one tree, this one group of people called out to know God and worship God and love God. Ephesians, over and over again. You can tell a lot of this comes from Ephesians. When most people talk about the doctrine of the church or teach the doctrine of the church, they just walk through Ephesians um, and we'll get to do that one day. But um, he says there's no dividing wall between the Jews and the Greeks, between the Jews and the Gentiles that there are, they've been made one, one new man in Jesus Christ. But that being said, if you want a definition for the church, universally, the church is the people of God for all ages. That's what it is. The church is the people of God who are called out, who are in covenant relationship with him for all ages, which means it's universal. It also means it's historical. That you and I, we are called into this family, we're adopted into this family, um, not just with people living in our day, but we're gonna spend eternity in heaven with people that have gone before us, with Martin Luther. We are in the same spiritual family as him, with William Wilberforce, with Corey Ten Boom, with like some of these incredible people that we read about, they are adopted into the same family as we are, under Christ as the head. But it's universal, it is referring to all believers Everywhere, um, oftentimes we refer to this as the big C church, right? This is the, the universal church. 
the Big C Church, our Christian brothers and sisters around the world right now. We pray for them, we worship with them, we visit them. Um, but, and I'll give you some examples of the times that the, the universal church is used in scripture. Um, it's universal, but we'll see that it's also local. And there's a, you know, I can hop on a plane and go and visit my brothers and sisters in Christ in Guatemala and in other places. And it's beautiful and it's amazing to see all that God is doing and that the gospel is doing across the world. Um, but it's different than when we come back and I see you these people that I have made a commitment to be in a covenant relationship with God and, and committed to one another with. Um, it is very different, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But this word, ecclesia, is used about 114 times in the New Testament, and 24 times that it's used, it's referring to the universal church, the big C church, all believers everywhere. Only 24, which means the other 90 times or about 80% of the time that the church is mentioned, it's referring to a specific local group of believers, a specific group of people who are called out, who are a part of the universal church, but they assemble, they're the called out ones who, who assemble and gather together regularly, and they're committed to one another to be and do all that a church is and does. That's 80% of the time that it's mentioned, which is why I said, if we wanna be a church that obeys the New Testament and that measures our success by the New Testament, we have to know one another. There are 59 one another's in the New Testament to love one another, serve one another, carry each other's burdens, rebuke one another, exhort one another. And if we don't do the work to actually know one another, then we can't obey the New Testament. Because 80% of the time that the church is given a command it's meant to be obeyed within the context of a group of people who are committed to one another. And we can do it, you know, generally, but we wanna be as faithful to the text as we can. So let me give you a couple times that the, the word church or ecclesia is used for the universal church. The first one is um, the first time it's mentioned in the New Testament. This is when Peter and the disciples are walking with Jesus and he's asking them, hey, who do people say that I am? And he's like, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say you're a prophet. And he looks at Peter and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That Jesus is saying in that moment that the universal church, all believers, not the buildings, all people who believe in him for all time will be built on this rock, this foundation, this confession that Jesus Christ is the son of God that he's the Messiah, he's the promised one, he's the holy one of God, that all believers everywhere will be united under that truth. That if you don't believe in that, you are not a member of the universal church. If you do not believe in who Jesus Christ is, as he's revealed in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, God is appointed in the church, the universal church, First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And what Paul is saying here is that this universal church would be built on the foundation of, he says, first the apostles, and then the prophets, and then you've got teachers and signs and wonders and miracles, and all of these things would build the universal church. And we see this displayed in the book of Acts, that you see the apostles start preaching about who Jesus is. And you see the signs and wonders and you see the prophets show up and you see them raise up teachers and preachers and you see that the church universally starts to form from this movement. And then lastly, Ephesians 1, he puts all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, that Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is all. That the universal church, Jesus is the head, which I want you to hear me. That means I, as your pastor, I do not own you you are not at my beck and call. In, in fact, if anything, as a shepherd, uh, it might be the other way around. Not that you own me, but where, where my mission is to serve and feed and protect and all of those things. But because you're a member of this church and I'm the pastor, it doesn't mean that I, you belong to me. No, you belong to him. He's the head. And he raises up teachers and shepherds to preach and to care and to love and to protect, but he is the head. You belong to him. So there's a couple times that it's used universally, but I want you to see this. It's often 
used locally. 80% of the time that the church is mentioned, it's referring to a local group of believers who've been called out. They're within the universal church, but they're committed to one another. And you see this in 1 Corinthians chapter one. He says, the church of God, or Paul's writing, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So we have the same Lord universally across all of people, all places, the universal church. We have one Lord, but Paul's writing to the specific group of people to the church of God that is in this specific place who are committed to one another, to love one another, and to be and to do all that a church is and does. Galatians chapter one, Paul's writing and he says, Paul an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the church is in Galatia, right? So in the region of Galatia, you had multiple local church is. Do you see that? This is, a picture that is very similar to how we do church today. There are multiple churches in this region. And to be a true church, you have one Lord and it is Jesus Christ and you, have the, you hold to the confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God, right? That we see Jesus for who he is. Last one, Romans 16 says this, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all these other churches of the Gentiles, they give thanks. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apainetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. So you see, you've got churches among the Gentiles, you've got the universal church, and he says, hey, and thank that specific church, that specific group of believers who have been called out and who gather together and assemble together in her house. You see that? So a local church is a group of people that are a part of the universal church, but they regularly assemble together, and not just that, they're committed to one another. They're committed to be in covenant relationship with God, and I would even argue in covenant relationship with one another, to be and to do with one another all that a church is and does. There's a commitment to one another where we're obeying the 59 one another's in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So, last thing that we'll look at is what are a couple purposes of the church? As I said, we're not gonna be able to cover it all this morning. We've got two more weeks that we'll look at um, the functions of the church and the attributes of the church and what does it look like for us to be committed to one another and those things. We'll look at the marks of the church. But first, I want us to look at the purpose of the church. And like I said, I'm not talking about the building. I'm not talking about the institution. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about those of you who are believers in the room. I'm talking about those people who have the called out ones, who have been called out by God to know him, love him, serve him, walk with him. What is our purpose? Is it to fill up rooms? Is it to attend programs, to hang out, to have get-togethers? What is the purpose of the church? The ultimate purpose is to glorify God, right? To worship him, to enjoy him, to know him. That's why we were created. That's why we've been redeemed and saved, to know God and to enjoy him and to worship him. But what does that look like tangibly? What are the purposes that God has given the church that the believers, the group of people. The first one, I would argue, is to make disciples. It's very clear in Matthew 18 that our role as believers, the called out ones, the universal church, is to make disciples. That's also a purpose of the local church, is to raise up and make disciples, to make disciples of all nations, to teach others how to teach others to raise up learners and followers of Jesus. And we do that in this room. We do that individually across the tables from one another. But we teach people how to learn and follow Jesus. How do we do that? We're teaching, we're evangelizing, we're baptizing. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we're teaching them to obey and observe all that he's commanded. And he's gonna be with us, right? We're doing all of this um, to the end, that as Paul says in Colossians 1, um, that we would warn everyone and teach everyone that we would present everyone mature in Christ. Is that part of this is we are raising up and making disciples. We wanna do that as a local church, but this is the command given to us as individuals, not the building, not the programs, 
to each of us. The second one is that we would proclaim the gospel. This is one of the purposes of the called out ones, that you and I, you've been rescued and redeemed by God's grace, that you would proclaim the gospel. First Peter 2, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that, or that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That he's chosen you, he's redeemed you, he's saved you, he has rescued you. Why? So that you would proclaim the excellencies of what he's done. That's why. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that God has reconciled us to himself, but he's also given us a ministry of reconciliation. That we would go and be the means by which God is reconciling other sinners to himself. Proclaiming the excellencies that God is in the business of saving sinners. So proclaiming the gospel. This is one of our purposes here in this community. That we would be a lighthouse to this community. And by we, I mean each of us individually. As a member of this church as one of the called out ones, that we would share the gospel with people as we go, at the grocery store, at our place of employment, that we would share the gospel, that we would be a city on a hill, that we would proclaim the gospel to this community. Paul planted the church of Ephesus, raised up Timothy, and Paul was a missionary, as a church planner. He said, I've got work to do, but he told Timothy, I want you to stay here and pastor this church and do the work of an evangelist in this community. So one of our purposes that God has us here is that all of us, not the building, not the brand, not High Point, that each of us, that we would proclaim the gospel to this community as we go. On the PTA board and in the cafeteria and in the community. Does that make sense? Proclaim the gospel. Another one is to protect the gospel. That you and I have been called to protect the gospel that Paul says from day one, and we see this happen, like minutes after Jesus leaves the earth, people show up and start adding to the gospel. That it's not free, a free gift of salvation by faith because of God's grace. That you gotta work for it, that you gotta do these things, you gotta follow these steps, you gotta play this religious game. That the gospel has always been um, opposed by the world and people, wolves rising up and trying to add to it and take away from it and change the gospel. Always, Acts 20, Paul says that wolves will show up from among you. That part of us being and doing all that a church is and does is knowing one another enough and caring about one another enough to protect each other from falling into false teachings. That's one of my primary jobs as a pastor and shepherd is to teach the word as it's written and to call out false teachings and false interpretations and false ideologies out there. Why? Because we want each of us to persevere until the end. And just like in 1 John, people show up. They deny the Father, they deny the Son, and because these people don't hold to right doctrine, they leave the church. And I want all of us in here to persevere. I want your children to persevere to the end. And false doctrines will creep in and try to lead them astray, to love the things of the world. And what are we called to do? To protect the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 1, he says, I'm astonished. He's writing to these these churches, local churches in Galatia. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That part of the role of the church is to protect and lift up and and display the true gospel to one another, to this community, in your family, that we would know one another and care care about one another enough to call each other out. Like, hey, I think you might be dabbling into something that's not according to scripture. Hey, I think... One of this, whatever you're entertaining has got some, some false teaching in it. Let's talk about it. But that we would care one, about one another and care about our future end, our, where we're gonna end. We would care about each other enough that we would come alongside of one another and say, hey, I think you might be deviating from the truth of scripture. It's gonna cause us to have to know one another. And then the last one, we'll end with this one, is... Um, that 
a purpose of the church, and it's the one we read this morning, is to display the gospel, to make disciples, to proclaim it, to protect it, but also to display it. And here's what I mean by that. Um, If you still happen to be in Ephesians 3, um, I would encourage you to look at the page before or flip back over to Ephesians chapter 2. Because the passage that we read this morning needs a little bit of context, and I'll give it to you real quick, because I want you to see this. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul essentially splits it in half. And the first half in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is that God is reconciling sinners to himself, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, all of those things, right? But God, he has made us alive. Ephesians chapter 2. Right, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he goes on to say that this is through faith. It's not of your works, not of your own doing. No one can boast. So the first half of Ephesians 2 is God is reconciling sinners to himself. And it is his work, it is his mercy, it is his grace that we receive. It causes us to go from death to life. Do you see that? The second half of Ephesians 2 is God is not only reconciling us to himself, but God is reconciling us to one another. That if you look in verses 11 through 22, he talks about the Gentiles were far off and the Jews were near, but then he ends up saying that we were separated, we were far off, and now through Christ, God has brought us near. He's made us one new man from the two. He's destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. So now in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek or Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, black, white, it does not matter. In Christ, you are one. He has made us one. Now, what Paul says in Ephesians 3, after he's just given us the context, that in Christ, God is reconciling people to himself and reconciling people to one another, this is what he's referring to in chapter 3. If you look at it with me one more time that we read, the passage we read, he said, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And here's what he says in verse nine. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here's the plan. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what he's saying. That through the church, a watching world would still be able to see that God is reconciling people to himself and God is reconciling people to one another. That through the way that, that we that through the universal church, but specifically through the way that the local church would love one another and take care of one another and lay down our lives for one another and be generous to one another and forgive one another and exhort one another and all the one another's, that as we do that with one another, a watching world would go, wow, God is in the business of saving people from death to life and he is uniting people to each other. That's what our love is communicating to the world. This mystery that God was going to save sinners by his grace through faith and he was gonna make them one under Christ as the head. It's the way we operate as people in this church, that's the message that the world should be able to see. That God still saves sinners of who I am the worst and God is in the business of uniting people from every tribe, tongue, nation, every socioeconomic status, every ethnicity. He is uniting people to himself. He has destroyed the dividing walls. That when the world looks at how the church loves one another, they should be confused and go, hold on, wait a second. The world doesn't operate like that. The forgiveness that you all freely give to each other, nobody else out here in the world does that. Nobody does. Hey, the way that you're generous and will lay down your lives for one another and take care of one another, The world doesn't operate that way. It says, get what's yours, take what's yours, right? Every video you see that goes viral now is here's how to make a couple extra bucks and how to live a a slightly better life and be slightly more productive so that you can get yours. What is this group of people who, who literally bring all of their possessions and their gifts and their items to the table and say, hey, we wanna make sure that nobody in here has any need. 
The world doesn't operate that way. And when the world looks down at the way that the church should be loving one another, they should see this mystery that God is saving sinners. He is saving people who are lost. He is saving people who are lost and dead in their sin. He is making them alive in Christ and he is uniting us to one another. That the way the church functions should display the gospel to the world. It's funny, in John 13, Jesus says, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. He says that you have love. He doesn't say your love for them, which tons of scripture calls us to love the lost. But he says, what's gonna show the world that you love me? The way you love one another is going to display the gospel. The way you take care of one another and serve one another and care for one another. And we won't read it, but Paul then goes into Ephesians 4 and he says, the The role of the pastor and the elders and the staff is to equip us and structure our church in a way where we can be and do all of that. That's our role, is to structure this church in a way where we can know one another and take care of one another and live life with one another so that we can be and do all that a church is and does. So that we can love Christ because he's adopting people into his family and he's making the dead people come alive and that we can love one another because Christ is uniting people to each other under Jesus. Does that make sense? This is the purpose of the church. And if we don't know one another, if we don't do the hard work to structure our church in a way that we get up in each other's lives and be a family and get to know one another, and we're just giving you your spiritual ease of conscience every week, I don't wanna be a part of it because I'm gonna give an account to the Lord And I want to be able to faithfully stand before him. And we're never gonna do it perfectly, which is why we have his spirit and we have his grace and he's the one building his church. But I wanna do everything we can. And the elders and the staff at this church are in full agreement that we wanna do all that we can to structure our church in a way where we can be and do all of this. Where we can know and love and serve and care for one another. So that the world will see the way that we love one another and say, there's a God who's making dead people alive and he's uniting people to one another under the banner of of who Jesus is and what he's done. So, like I said, whether we do this or not, the mission doesn't hinge on us. The report I give to the Lord might, but the mission isn't dependent on us. God is going to be faithful to build his church. He will. The Bible will end with a group of people called out by God from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, united to one another under the head, which is Christ, enjoying him forever, practicing all of the one another's in scripture that have to do with righteousness because all the ones that have to do with sin will be unnecessary. We will love and enjoy him for all time, not because of anything the church did, but because everything he did. He's the one who created us. He's the one who lived for us. He's the one who shed his blood to purchase and redeem us and forgive us. He's the one who who fulfilled the old covenant and he's the one who laid down his life to give us the new covenant. He's the one who's cleansed and sanctified us by his blood. He's the one who leads us by his voice and by his word. He's the power in us that can transform a heart as we proclaim the gospel. He's the spirit, he's the power in us that, that gives us the ability to read his word and to obey his word and to resist the temptation from the enemy. He's the one that's begun this good work and he's going to be the one that completes it. And when we stand before him one day as the universal church, once again, being guided by his word and his voice, our cry will be, you're the only one that's worthy. You began this, you completed it. And our hope and our prayer is that we would do everything we can to be as faithful to what God has presented in his word that the church should be, that the church is and does. And that's where we're going. And we'll talk about that as we continue this series. Um, But I wanna close in the form of a benediction with this. Um, This is Jeremiah chapter 32. Um, It won't be on the screen, but if you wanna make a note, I would love for you to to go there if you'd like. Um, You can read it later. Um, But look at God's heart for his people. Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 38. um, What an incredible way Uh, to be reminded of God's love for us. He says this, um, this is God speaking um, through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever 
for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Church, he's begun this work and he will complete it. Not because of our worthiness, but because of his goodness. Father, we love you. God, thanks for your word. God, thanks for just a glimpse um, as we begin over the next couple of weeks to see um, who you've designed your people to be, how you've um, ordered them to act according to your word, to display the gospel to a watching world, to proclaim it to those who are lost, to protect it from those um, who are attacking it, and God, ultimately, to raise up mature disciples who walk with you and follow you. And God, we just humbly wanna say, Move us, guide us, be with us, give us discernment as we figure out what does it look like for this church um, to be as faithful to the message that you've given us. God, we love you. If there's anyone in here that has never put their faith in you, God, that this morning heard for the first time maybe that you are reconciling sinners to yourself and they don't have to do anything to earn it or to deserve it, they can't. God, it's not because they're goodness, it's because of your mercy and your kindness and your grace, God, that they can put their faith in you and they can be a part of this universal church, this called out group of people to know you and enjoy you forever. God, that is a free gift to them by faith. So if there's anyone in here that hasn't done that, God, I pray that they would make that decision today to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.